Well, as you know, if you've been coming regularly for some time now, we've been in this Old Testament expository series in the book of Ecclesiastes entitled Living Life in Perspective. And Solomon, or the teacher, has been doing a lot of observation about life under the sun. Now, in the latter part of the book, he's moving more and more to exhortation about how we should live, and particularly how should we, we should live using wisdom, that our way may be pleasing to the Lord and may result in better things, even in a difficult and fallen world. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the seventh chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles or look on the screen or follow on your devices. We're going to be reading a, a fairly lengthy section, and I won't be stopping to reread each of these, so try to catch the overall flow, and then I'll explain as we go through and apply the word of the Lord. From Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning at verse 11 through verse 29. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous. Do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in the city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart All the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. 
And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken in by her. Behold, this is what I have found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The word of the Lord. May God add his blessing to it. Let's pray. Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And we ask that in your light, we may see light today. In Jesus' name, amen. Where ignorance is bliss, tis folly to be wise. Have you ever heard that? Comes from an ode by Thomas Gray, a poem by Thomas Gray entitled Ode on a Distant Prospect of Eton College. And the picture that he paints with his poetry is that of students gleefully, blissfully playing on the field and in the classroom of their college, enjoying life to the fullest because they are completely oblivious and at this point innocent of what lay before them. In other words, hard times are coming and they don't have a clue. The teacher, Solomon, seems to have discounted the value of wisdom. If you go back and read chapter 1 again, and particularly in verse 18, look, listen to what he says about wisdom. Here he seems to be kind of in step with the sentiments uh, expressed by Mr. Gray when he says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. Seeing that I must leave. No, I'm sorry. That's no wrong. Oh, here we and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun, but this also was vanity. In other words, he seems to be discounting the value of wisdom in the first chapter. But now he seems to be taking a different turn. Now in verses in chapter 7 and chapter 8, he previously described wisdom under the sun. Wisdom that comes from below, if you will. Now he's talking about a different kind of wisdom. If the people of God ever needed wisdom today, it's, it's now in a time like we live in. 
If there ever was a time for wisdom to know how to live well, today is a time of great need. But we need more than just worldly wisdom. We need more than wisdom from below. We need wisdom from above. The kind of wisdom that God gives to those who trust and fear him. That's what we're going to be looking at today. We're going to use three points. Here they are. Wisdom is a shield. Wisdom is a strength. And wisdom is scarce. It's a strength. It's a shield. It's a strength. But unfortunately, it's scarce. Let's look at, first of all, wisdom being a shield. And and Solomon begins his discussion here beginning in chapter, uh, verse 11 of chapter 7, he begins this discussion with very practical goals in mind. He's talking about the value of wisdom, how wisdom can help us deal with what we have and use it more wisely and, and, and be a protection to us, to be a shield to, for us. In verses 11 and 12, just listen to these again. In verses 11 and 12, chapter 7, Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So he seems to have changed his tune. He seems to now be saying wisdom's a good thing. You need it. Go get it. It'll help you hang on to what you've got. It'll help you make wiser decisions. He seems to be lauding the value of wisdom here. Those who see the sun, that's just basically a way of talking about people that are alive and still breathing air on planet earth. And even if we inherit vast wealth, he says, we're going to need wisdom to know how to manage it so that we don't do something stupid with it. It helps shield us from our own foolishness. Wisdom can, therefore, provide an advantage in those circumstances. That's what he's saying in those verses. But then comes another verse. In the next verse, we see something very interesting. In the next verse, he tells us that it is not wise, but rather foolish to try to change those things over which we have no control. Look at verse 13 again. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now, again, that's a, that's a metaphor, but it's very simple in what it's saying. It's saying some things that God does, you cannot reverse, no matter how wise you are, no matter how tr- far hard you try. And if you do, you're not being wise, you're being foolish. This is really a call to what? Trust in the sovereign plan of God. It's a call to say, recognize you're not in control here. He is. And he's working his plan after the counsel of his own will. And even the straight or the crooked things, as they appear to us from our vantage point, we can't. Make them straight. We can't fix many things in this world. We can't change what God is doing. And so it's a call to rest in his sovereignty. 
and in his good intentions for his people. And it includes, his plan includes both the straight and the crooked. Both the prosperity and the adversity. Remember, that's the subject that he dealt with the last two weeks in this series. He talked about prosperity, and we said, you know, we don't know. That's really good for us. Who knows? And then last week, we talked about adversity, and we realized, you know, we don't know that that's not good for us. Matter of fact, it often is. He's still pulling that same thread here. It's interesting that uh, many years ago, uh, 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 a preacher Puritan preacher named Thomas Boston wrote uh, a uh, book entitled The Crook and the Lot. The Crook and the Lot. What he's talking about is based off of this verse. And it's a sermon about the purposes of God using not only blessing, but also adversity and trial and suffering in our lives. And he's basically saying God's plan involves both things that appear to us delightful and good and some things that are very, very hard and very difficult to bear. But they are part of God's plan. And yes, even the crook, even the crooked things are in that plan. And we can't change that. And if we're wise, we won't keep trying. We won't keep kicking against the goads. We won't keep beating our head against that brick wall of trying to change it. Rest in God. Leave that in his hands. Then after the declaration of sheer sovereignty that was in verse 13, then verse 14 comes up. Look at that. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that comes after him. His point is that God made them both, but our inclination, of course, is what? To accept the prosperity. We love that. That's what we pray for. There are people out there asking God, prosper me, do this, bless me. We understand that. We get that. We love that part of it. But we reject. We, we chafe against the appearance of adversity in our lives. But what he's saying, what the verse is saying is that God has good and gracious intentions for his people with both in their lives. And they will be there. Wisdom from above says, trust him because he knows more than you and he will make the crooked places straight, but only in his own time. That's the key, not in yours, not in mine. Only in his own time is he going to straighten out the things that are bent and crooked and busted. Now, hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to that at the very end here today. I want to tell you a quick story. Some of you may have uh, heard of uh, a preacher and theologian uh, by the name of James Montgomery Boyce. Uh, I was privileged uh, in my former church uh, with the Theological Institute, Pensacola Theological Institute, to have uh, uh, James Boyce uh, with us several times uh, as a speaker at that institute. Um, he was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, a PCA congregation. Uh, faithful preacher of God's word, uh, powerfully used um, uh, both in America and and, in other parts of the world. Um, And not too long after his last visit with us at McIlwain, he came down with a very, very aggressive form of 
incurable cancer. And it was quick. He hardly had time, a few weeks. And when he made his farewell address to his sheep, to his congregation at 10th Prez, he talked over and over in that address about the themes of the sovereignty and goodness of God. And at one point at the end, he asked his congregation this question. He said, if God does something in your life, would you change it? Even if it's difficult, even if it's hard. If God is doing something in your life, would you change it if you could? It's a very, very intriguing and probing question. Or to put it in the words of the teacher, if God puts a crook in your life, are you going to try to make it straight? Or are you going to leave that in his hands and ask for the grace to walk through that with wisdom and the fear of God? Secondly, wisdom's a strength. In verses 15 through 19, all people appear to be treated irrespective of the character by providence. That's the amazing thing here. It seems like no matter what people are doing or the way they're living or behaving, it seems like they're being treated just willy-nilly, harem, you know, helter-skelter. It doesn't seem like there's any reason. Solomon says he observes people that, in, in some cases, righteous people who die too young and wicked people who live too long. How, what, what do we do with that? How can that be? How can there be a plan for that? And then a few verses later, we see one of the most confusing probably passages and easily misinterpreted passages in Ecclesiastes 7, 16 through 18. Look there. 16 through 18. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from them both. Now, many people think that Solomon's basically, again, advocating the golden mean. You remember me talking about that, the idea of the perfect balance. The thing I like to think is I always tell my family, you know, I'm the golden mean here. You're this and that extreme. And, you know, of course, they never buy that. They don't believe it. Uh, and it's not true. But I like to, like, to, like to throw it out there. But some people think that's what, what Solomon's doing here or the writer, the teacher is doing. He's using that and he's advocating something like this. So basically, his counsel would be, in a nutshell, uh, is it's sort of like um, it is as if he said, don't be too holy and don't be too wicked. Sin in a moderate degree. That's not what he's saying, by the way. That's not. <laughs> but it almost sounds like that, doesn't it? Don't be too holy. Don't be too bad. But he's really not talking about that. He's talking about not real righteousness. He's talking about self righteousness he's warning against the arrogance of self-righteousness it's a caution and when he says be not overly wise in verse 16 
That is to be understood in the sense of Proverbs 3, 7, which says this, be not what? Wise in your own eyes. Be wise, but not, don't, don't become conceited. Don't become arrogant in your self-righteousness. And then he says, it's only when we have the fear of the Lord, which is a way of both showing reverence and respect, but it's really another way of speaking of a heartfelt childlike trust in God and what he provides, what he lets flow from his sovereign hands. It's when we fear the Lord that we will have wisdom and strength to grow through the ups and downs, through the adversities and the prosperities, through the straights and the crookeds in our lives. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Now, here's the last point. Wisdom, wisdom is is not only a shield and a strength. Unfortunately, it's something else. It's scarce. It's scarce. Having spoken of the relative value of wisdom, in verses 20 through 29, now the teacher declares, there are not many wise ones out there. (laughs) Virtually none really is his point. In verse 20, he tells us the cause of the condition. Look at verse 20. Here's why. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. I didn't hear any exceptions, did you? Interestingly, sounds a lot like something else in the New Testament, doesn't it? Like perhaps Romans 3, 10 through 12, which says this. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, the teacher goes on to play with some metaphors and some examples. But he's really pointing out everything is still coming back to that funneling down to that single point. Not a single person. Not a soul, man, woman, boy, girl on the planet is good. In other words, this is depicting what we call total depravity. Not that man is as bad as he possibly can be. Every man or woman is as bad as they possibly can be. But that they are all affected devastatingly by the fall. And they are inherently incapable of doing anything that is truly righteous. In verse 22, the indictment is that we all are serial offenders before the holy God. You know what a serial killer is? Repeat, repeat, repeat killer. Serial offenders. That's what we are. That's what this text is telling us. My friends, by the way, this, this relates to this table here. Until you and I fully come to grips with the extent of our sinfulness, of our sinfulness, the cross of Jesus will not make sense to you. You won't really understand 
why he had to come and die on the cross. All the other religions don't need that. Just keep trying to do better. They tell you, keep, keep trying. Keep trying to fill up and make up for what's missing. If we understand what the Bible is teaching us here, there is no way up from here. There's only the hope in someone else to provide the solution for us. And that is what the cross is. But it's only given and provided for sinners who know and recognize and acknowledge their sin. That's why the people who come to this table have to be believers, but they have to be acknowledging their sinfulness. That's the credentials for getting here. They need a Savior. They're still desperately in need of a Savior. Then in verses 23 to 24, we're being reminded that no one can fully comprehend God's ways. You know, to admit that we don't know answers shows what? That we really are pretty wise. If we can admit that we don't know the answers, that's a good sign that you're actually thinking wisely. You're thinking straight. I love this uh, quote, and I, and I don't, I thought it, for a while it was Anselm, but I'm pretty sure it's not. Uh, but wherever it came from, uh, it's somewhere in the, in the, uh, 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 recesses of the back of my mind, but it goes something like this. In this context, about when it's wise to admit that you don't know, that that's really wisdom, it is never more reasonable. Reason is never more reasonable than when it ceases to reason about the things that are above reason. Now, let me say that again. Reason is never seen to be more reasonable than when it ceases to reason about the things that are above reason. When you recognize you're out of your league, you recognize you have got no way that you can go there, and you humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and before his good and perfect plan You see, in verses 25 to 28, the subject is the scarcity of wisdom. He's just continuing that theme that he's already been building. And he uses this hyperbole to make the point. And you know what? He's making the point that seems like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He seems like he's being harder on women. No, he's making a point that there is none. It's just a hyperbole way to do it. He's using hyperbole to make the point that men and women, whether it's the lady of folly or the devolved Adam, Either one. They're not one righteous, no, not one. He's already said that, and he's just once again coming back to paint that. Both fall short of the mark. That's the common denominator. That's where it all comes to the tip of the spear. It all comes down to that. It's where it funnels down. None, none are making it none are making the mark they all fall short don't you remember jesus said that to the rich young ruler why you call me good there's only one good and that is god there's no no normal ordinary man there was one and he was the one speaking but he was not any ordinary man he was the god man and Paul, 
We heard what he said already. He's pointing it all down to this. Now, it would be real easy to end right here and say, wow, that's a real cheerful uh, summary again. Thanks for telling us that it's pretty hopeless. There's not a way. There's not one of us. And there's none righteous man or woman, boy or girl. But thankfully, verse 29 is not the final word. It's not the final word in the Bible. There is a New Testament. And it is that which we celebrate because the final word was Jesus. There's a song by that uh, very name, The Final Word by Michael Card, Christian uh, writer and elder uh, at uh, PCA Church in Nashville. This is what he said. He, meaning Jesus, God, he spoke the incarnation and then was born a son. His final word was Jesus. He needed no other one. Spoke flesh and blood so he could bleed and make a way divine. And so was born a baby who would die to make it mine. God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. That we might go free. That we might be welcome to this table. That we might feast with him. And know that he is working all things after the counsel of his own goodwill in his own time. You know, I said earlier, remember, I said, leave it to God to straighten out the crooked in his own time. And some things still are not straightened out for you and me. They won't be until Jesus comes back the second time. But a lot of things change forever when he came the first time. Remember, this is back in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Jesus came, and yet another prophet prophesied in these words in Isaiah 40, verse 4. Listen to the similarity of language, the same idea. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a pain, a plain. Sounds like straightening out things that are crooked, don't, doesn't it? Leveling off things that are, that are rough. It's all language of saying, God is going to do something. You can't. It's hopeless. The bridge is out. That's what he's telling us. But God will one day bring the answer and the solution in Jesus. That's a prophecy of the coming Messiah and also beautifully in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 23 and 24, when Paul is talking about the gospel, he says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, in other words, to those who believe, to those who put their trust in him, Christ, the power of God and the very wisdom of God. The one that has come and will and has already made the crooked straight and opening a new and living way that's represented in this table through the blood and body of Jesus Christ given for those who believe. And he has become now our wisdom. He has become the power and wisdom 
of God for us. He is the one in whom we now put all our hope. We let go of all other foolish things, trust in all other foolish and unwise answers. We put all our eggs in this one basket that Jesus Christ, the God-man, came and Christ has died. Christ is risen and Christ will come again to finally straighten out every crooked thing in his own time on that day. Let us pray. Father, as we take this meal as believers in Christ, Lord, remind us that the answer has come. The final word has been spoken in your son, that the one you came and made the way of salvation. You straightened the way that from our crookedness that could never get there. And you, Lord, gave us the answer in Jesus Christ. And he is now, Lord, the one in whom we trust. Father, may our faith be strengthened today and our fellowship be sweet in Jesus' name. Amen.